Hey there, and welcome to CIA Files, True Stories of U.S. Intelligence. I am your host, Topher M. Ford, and with me as always, we have Brandon Givens. Brandon, tell us how you're doing. Oh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm getting very excited about a road trip I have planned in the next few weeks. We're still working on getting our visas, but we plan to visit the former Soviet Republic of Uzbekistan. Ooh, I think that sounds exciting. <laughs> oh, yeah, they have lots of um, like beautiful old mosques and um, old cities and this ancient city. Uh, this ancient city, Samarkand, is there. And yeah, I think uh, Timur, uh, one of the... It was not Mongolian. He was a Mongol, Turkic sort of conqueror fellow. Uh, he's buried there. And yeah, a lot of very interesting stuff. I'm looking forward to it. That does sound interesting. I haven't, I haven't even left the States before. So that all sounds very exotic to me. Well, the street food should be good, too. It's a plov, which is like, it's a rice dish. You know, it's like, oh, rice with raisins and little bits of carrot. And like, and they argue around here about plov like people in the South do about barbecue. And it's like, oh, they don't, they don't do their plov right. They, they, you know, they had, they, they had the wrong spices, you know. It's like, oh, they got vinegar barbecue. No, 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 it really should be, should be sweet. And like, That's oh, interesting. They, they, yeah. <laughs> to know so, that there are like over picky uh, assholes in every country. <laughs> uh, humans are humans. Like everywhere you go, like the template's the same. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm the same reason to argue about pretty much the same stuff. And just I mean, different hats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know what? Honestly, people all like. I think barbecue is pretty much the same hat, except um, uh, outside the U.S., it seems to be more about it being on a stick. So you can call it um, shashlik here or shish kebab in other places. But cool. Well, today's topic is uh, has been really interesting, and as soon as I heard about this character, I, I knew immediately that we had to cover him at some point. And that is uh, a man named Carmel Offie. Very interesting story. Very interesting person who got uh, taken out by the Red Scare. Uh, and he was also taken out by the Lavender Scare, too, wasn't he? Right. Yeah. More, I guess more uh, specifically the Lavender Scare because he was gay. And that was uh, everyone well, had decided that was a problem. Well, if there's anything we have in the U.S., it's it's different shades of scares, of colors, you know, whether it's red or lavender or fill in the blank. Yeah. Well, that's another thing. I wonder if uh, that's the same in other countries. Um, it, that seems like a pretty human thing to do. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Always be afraid of, um, well, it's a political strategy is um, keep people scared. Uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs that people are you know absent food shelter and afraid for their safety they, they can't really think logically and critically and so and it's a way to inspire those reptilian reactions out of us you know oh this is this other group and they're out to get you yeah and that's definitely what um, politicians do it's what we're gonna uh, get our first name drop of a certain senator named Joseph McCarthy in this episode. I hear he has a letter. 
<laughs> I heard about the letter, but I haven't seen it. Much like everyone else. But yeah, so without further uh, blathering on, here is uh, Carmel Offi. We are not professing to tell you the complete story of these activities. We are professing to tell you the complete story that we know. These records that we've uncovered don't tell the story. This is CIA files. They tell pieces of it. True stories of U.S. intelligence. Of Ophi, an old observer once remarked that either he was going to be Secretary of State someday, or his body was going to be found floating down the Potomac River. If largely unknown today, Afi remains one of the most unlikely and intriguing figures ever to reach a position of prominence in the American government. A consummate charmer, schemer, and scoundrel who earned the nickname the Royal Dwarf for the behind-the-scenes power he wielded. Scott Anderson, The Quiet Americans. Carmel Afi is one of history's tragically overlooked characters. Someone who worked with superhuman effort and questionable ethics to protect a country that would, in turn, destroy him out of convenience. Described by many as short and ugly, Afi still managed to charm everyone he met and curry favor with everyone from political leaders to army generals. He managed the logistics for several complicated shadow operations in Europe while managing personal smuggling operations via his access to military infrastructure. Alfie became known among his peers, at least for a short time, as the Royal Dwarf, the man behind the scenes, making the insane missions dreamt up by his bosses a reality while keeping their wives in furs and perfumes. Carmel Offie was born in 1907 in the small town of Sharon, Pennsylvania. One of, as Scott Anderson wrote in The Quiet Americans, at least 11 children, Offie grew up with a strong desire to escape his poor hometown. As a child, he was brilliant and ambitious. At 17, Offie learned stenography before moving to Washington, D.C., where he found work as a clerk with the Interstate Commerce Commission. He eventually transferred to the State Department, after which he was sent to work at the American Embassy in Honduras. After working there for a few years, Offi returned to Washington, where he impressed his co-workers with his clerking skills. Scott Anderson writes, There, co-workers marveled at his ability to write two memorandums simultaneously with a pen in either hand, while effortlessly slipping between the several foreign languages. He would eventually be fluent in at least five that he had taught himself. Offie's charm and impressive skills may have been a compensation for his general physical appearance. From the Quiet Americans, A small and exceedingly odd-looking man, few who met him could refrain from noting his physical repulsiveness. He possessed another attribute that would have been a major social obstacle at the time. He was gay. Despite the taboo of his orientation, 
Offie managed to avoid the typical scorn this would earn anyone else in that era. In 1934, Offie's career received a huge boost when he was appointed assistant to the first U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union, William C. Bullitt. Offie became invaluable to Bullitt, rarely leaving his side in Moscow. Some at the time even speculated that the two men were lovers, although Bullitt was also known to be a serial womanizer. Offie was so valuable to Bullitt that Bullitt soon promoted him to secretary of vice consul. During his time in Moscow and Eastern Europe, Offie witnessed the brutality of the Stalin regime and so developed a deep hatred for the Soviet Union. Before the Great Terror, Stalin saw at least two threats. Number one was his political enemies, and the second, an angry underclass. Considering the dire state of affairs when the communists initially took over and the Civil War, the Russian Civil War, they instituted what they said was to be a temporary dictatorship under Lenin. Now, Lenin, as a general rule, encouraged democratic centralism, which basically means the party members could freely debate, but once a vote was made, the party as a whole was supposed to go along with the majority decision. Now, that doesn't mean they all got along. Offie had a talent for impressing important people and earning favors from them. In 1936, Offie followed Bullitt to Paris, where he managed to charm the local aristocracy. Bullitt related to President Roosevelt how Offie managed to build social connections that the U.S. Embassy had been trying and failing to build for years. Offie was the guest of honor at Maxim's at a dinner given by the Marquis and Marquise de Polignac, who are the greatest snobs in France. Inasmuch as the Polignacs habitually ignore everyone from this embassy, including the ambassadors, I think you will agree with me that Afi is already going fast and far. More than ever, Afi is the power behind the throne. Soon he was playing bridge with the Duchess of Windsor, and when young Joe Jr. and Jack Kennedy visited Paris, Offie was the person who set the brothers up with beautiful dates. Two of Offie's close friends were President Roosevelt's personal secretaries, Missy Lahand and Grace Tully. While in Paris, he wrote to them, I merely want to drop you this line to tell you that I shall take care of the antique cigarette box in the next few days. We still have no food problems or anything like that, but I have been reading that during the 1870 crisis, the people of Paris were calmly eating dogs, cats, etc. Do you suppose Mary would send me a can of pears if things get bad? No matter what desolate location Offie found himself in, he always managed to find special items his friends might want, such as oriental rugs and rare perfumes. Offie eventually began working for Robert Murphy, the State Department liaison with the military's top leaders. Murphy was appointed chief U.S. political advisor in Germany after World War II 
and off he followed him to Berlin. There he impressed the top brass and soon even generals were seeking his advice and insight. Offi's animosity toward the Russians only grew during his time in Germany, where he witnessed even more violent oppression. One of Offi's methods for transporting black market and contraband items, and for moving cash around, was by using the diplomatic pouch, which is exempt from any search or seizure. But in 1948, Inspectors discovered that Offie had been using the diplomatic pouch to move large amounts of cash around Europe. And there were other rumors making the rounds as well. Scott Thompson explained, This came on the heels of persistent rumors about contraband diamonds, black market trading, war profiteering, and some nasty business about commandeering a military plane to transport 300 Finnish lobsters. Offie managed to avoid any consequences for his illicit activities, but he decided to leave his position while he could still do so of his own free will. While Offie's extracurricular activities didn't sit well with the State Department, they made him a prime candidate for clandestine operations. As it so happened, a man named Frank Wisner needed people with Offie's skills for a new agency he was leading, the Office of Policy Coordination. The CIA interfered in the elections in Italy in 1948 with their preferred Democratic candidate winning. They found that the use of psychological warfare and propaganda could be effective in controlling or steering a foreign regime. So, a new agency was created, the Office of Policy Coordination. They were under the umbrella of the CAA, but were something of the actionable intelligence arm of the state and defense departments. Their mission was to use covert agents to deploy propaganda, economic warfare, sabotage, subversion, and help underground resistance movements. They were to support any anti-communist elements in the threatened countries of the free world. The operations were to be executed in a way that the U.S. government responsibility for them would not be evident, and if uncovered, the U.S. government could deny any responsibility for them. The CIA was founded by President Truman to gather important information about the foreign interests of the United States. But some men, including Frank Wisner, thought the CIA should also be proactive in undermining enemies of the U.S. with the number one target being Soviet Russia. Their first opportunity to get their hands dirty came soon after the leader of one Eastern European country defied Stalin and Soviet rule. That leader was Yugoslavia's Joseph Broz, also known as Tito. Yugoslavia had managed to overcome its Axis oppressors without much help from Soviet forces, leaving them with less dependence on the Soviets after the war. Albania, however, was controlled by Russia. But Yugoslavia became a huge buffer zone making Soviet access to Albania difficult. Tito, with Yugoslavia, 
had an incredibly difficult foreign relations calculus to balance. He had to keep both the West and the Soviet bloc happy. It's similar to the situation of modern-day Kazakhstan, which has to balance between Chinese, Russian, and U.S. interest. Right after World War II, relations were pretty good between Yugoslavia and Albania. Um, their, Their partisans had worked together in resisting the Nazis, and Um, Both of them had communist parties that that came to power. And they were united in an economic and customs union. And within Albania, Serbo-Croatian became a required subject in schools. There was even talk of Albania officially joining Yugoslavia, where it might be united with Kosovo. Tito and Stalin soon had a falling out. There was a communist insurrection in Greece, and Tito was providing support. Stalin did not like this. He was fearful of antagonizing the West. He had also agreed with Churchill to divide up Eastern Europe, and Greece was supposed to be under British influence. So it seems as if Stalin may have wanted to keep that promise. Well, Tito saw that as treason to the principles of the revolution. And eventually they had a, a complete falling out over it. And um, the common turn rejected Tito. So plans for Albanian Union with Yugoslavia were stopped. This led to a power struggle within Albania between those like um, Hoja, who supported Stalin, and those like Joje, the deputy prime minister, who supported Tito. The Stalinist won, and Tito's supporters were purged. So Yugoslavia then economically isolates Albania, but Albania fell within the Soviet sphere of influence. Albania's geographic isolation from Russia made it a prime target for the OPC's first attempt at undermining a nation's government. The idea was to organize native Albanians who opposed communist rule in their country and support them, leaving the U.S. out of any direct conflict. Thus was born Operation Fiend. The Soviets were providing support to Albania and building a submarine base which could be used to threaten Western control to the Mediterranean. There were also a number of Albanian refugees living around the world, many of them anti-communist, including the deposed king. U.S. and British intelligence became optimistic that the communist government didn't have popular support, and with a little help, an anti-communist insurrection could begin. So the U.S. helped organize a sort of democratic government in exile for Albania. And the British and U.S. intelligence services recruited and trained Albanian refugees in guerrilla warfare. The plan was to drop um, drop these new partisans into Albania by plane and sometimes by fishing boat. It, it happened rather piecemeal. They would, um, you know, drop in one or two teams. Uh, then the team would get captured or disappear. They would drop in one or two teams. Uh, the team would get captured or disappeared. It was tragically unsuccessful. 
Uh, it's reported that at times the police were like literally waiting on them as they landed on the shore or even as they parachuted in. Uh, these drops, they occurred from 1949 until 1952. You could call it a failed experiment in regime change or a tragic practice case. Wisner wanted this to serve as proof of concept for destabilizing foreign governments using nationals. His ultimate goal was for the OPC to develop and improve such operations and use them across Europe to chip away at Stalin's Soviet empire. Offie handled most of the day-to-day -day administration and problem-solving during the preparations. He recalled of this job that it was, quote, not particularly inspiring or pleasant. Albanian nationals comprised different, some feuding, factions that needed to work together. Afi helped smooth any turbulence by administering cash. Afi's sexual orientation was understood, if not outright acknowledged, by those around him. After meeting him, a young John F. Kennedy started calling Afi La Belle Afflette because of his effeminate mannerisms. Frank Wisner didn't care at all. His son discussed this later. I don't think my father could have cared less about Afi being gay. To him, it was all about, are you with me in this crusade? He wanted the most effective people who could throw off their Americanisms and be able to understand how this war was changing. So if you're gay or a woman or black, it's irrelevant. Offy was effective, and that's all that mattered. As Offy and Wisner fought against the spread of communism in Europe, some U.S. elected officials exploited this perceived communist threat for political gain. Enter Senator Joseph McCarthy, an ambitious Republican from Wisconsin. He would become responsible for first the Red Scare, and then roping homosexual people into his schemes, the Lavender Scare. After World War II, the Iron Curtain fell around Eastern Europe. In 49, the Soviets dropped their own hydrogen bomb, the Communists won the Chinese Civil War, soon after the Korean War started, then it seemed like every day a Soviet agent was getting caught on U.S. soil. Even before McCarthy, the U.S. was investigating subversives. As part of background checks for the loyalty of U.S. federal employees, Hoover nearly doubled the number of field agents. McCarthy was different in how he whipped it up into this paranoia. He insisted that he had a letter with hundreds of State Department employees' names on it, all of which were Communist Party members, and the Secretary of State was aware of it, and they were still there working, shaping policy. So further paranoia ensues. So here's a sitting congressman saying that communists are being allowed to run free with impunity in the State Department, despite all the work the FBI is already doing. There were already a number of congressional committees to investigate communist infiltration of society. He added more. This is when you get the Hollywood blacklist, when people in Hollywood suspected of being communists were blacklisted from work. Lots of people lost their jobs in general paranoia that, that you know, oh, well, they were communist or, or communist sympathizers. 
it became a witch hunt. And it even went so far that um, it aggravated the CIA and they broke into McCarthy's office and fed him information uh, in attempts to discredit him. During World War I, homosexuality was punished as a criminal offense within the military. But by World War II, it barred someone from serving based on this idea that it was a mental illness. The war itself and the New Deal did a lot to urbanize society, bring lots of different people together. And DC grew. And a, sub, a homosexual subculture developed there. Now the State Department reacted by creating its security principles for employment. This was that disloyal persons, including communists, their associates, those guilty of espionage, along with persons known for habitual drunkenness, sexual perversion, moral turpitude, financial irresponsibility, or criminal record, were to be denied employment. So homosexuality was considered sexual perversion. And the State Department used that to fire employees or not hire them in the first place. Well, why the sudden interest or focus? Well, it, it goes back to the, the Red Scare. You say it rode on the back of the Red Scare. Um, homosexuals were believed to be sympathetic to communists. They were prone to be countercultural, and it was believed that they eroded traditional family values. Really, it's a lot of the stuff that people say today. The State Department also worried that they were more open to blackmail. Now, of course, this would, of course, they, if they were not fired for being homosexuals, they would be um, less open to this hypothetical blackmail. All right, well, President Eisenhower signed Executive Order 1045 in 1953. This banned homosexuals from federal employment, including contractors. This led to yet another witch hunt. People became afraid to be friends with someone who might be homosexual or go to a place that might be associated with homosexuality for fear of guilt by association. Government employees would try to assert their straightness. They would introduce themselves by mentioning how many kids they had. It was like this ultimate cancel culture. Homosexuals had code words they would use um, that the intelligence community came to think were nefarious. And this goes back to even World War II. The, one of the, the phrases was, are you a friend of Dorothy? And it was a reference to Dorothy from Wizard of Oz, but it was just a way of asking if someone, someone were gay. Well, the intelligence community began to worry that Dorothy was a real agent or something. Most of these laws or executive orders, or these rules, I guess you could say, were executive orders. Um, the court in 1973 ruled that homosexuality alone could not bar someone from federal employment. As far as the military goes, um, Clinton modified the executive order with Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and Obama repealed the executive order altogether. Offie had been arrested a decade or so prior to this for propositioning an undercover officer for gay sex in Lafayette Park in Washington, D.C. 
Offie claimed he was innocent and accepted a reduced charge and a fine. The arrest record found its way to McCarthy via J. Edgar Hoover. The FBI uncovered this file during a different investigation, which happened to be into the officer who had arrested Offie. Without saying Offie's name, McCarthy had made his orientation and his position within the OPC public on the Senate floor, inquiring as to why this homosexual was allowed to work in a sensitive intelligence position, since by his reasoning, all sexual deviants were inherent security risks. McCarthy was somehow unaware, or more likely, uncaring, of the fact that his crusade against homosexuals was the very factor that might make them want to hide their personal life from the public. At first, many important people rushed to Offie's defense, including Lieutenant General Clarence Hubner, who wrote, Offie embodies a mind that is brilliant and active to an outstanding degree. His friendly, gregarious personality and his companionable ways have endeared him not only to his work associates, but to all the rank and file with which he comes in contact. One OPC officer who worked with Offie remarked in an interview, quote, How could the Soviets blackmail him? Everyone in Washington knew he was a homosexual. Offie's biggest advocate was his boss, Frank Wisner. Wisner supported Offie for a number of reasons. First off, Wisner knew that he couldn't handle all of the logistics of current and upcoming operations without Offie. Wisner was overseeing multiple clandestine operations across Europe, and Offie was the one person Wisner felt he could count on to take care of logistics and practicalities. Another reason is that Wisner didn't care that Offie was gay, and he believed that Offie was wholeheartedly dedicated to and capable of fighting the Soviet Union. Wisner's son, Frank Jr., said his father had a code of honor, which prevented him from willingly betraying someone so close to himself. I think a lot of it came down to honor. He had been raised with this very strict code of personal honor, and it was that you stand by your friends. You don't throw them over just because it's expedient to do so. Finally, Wisner knew that Offie's ouster was just the beginning of efforts from Hoover and other enemies of the CIA and of the OPC, and their ultimate goal was to dismantle the CIA and take over intelligence operations. Despite Wisner's resistance, McCarthy and Hoover eventually had their way. By inciting pressure from the general public, they were able to force the CIA to fire Offie. CIA Director Roscoe Hillenketter told Wisner that Offie had to be let go, but Wisner held off for as long as he was able. Offie was eventually identified as the person in question, and he said that the arrest occurred after he'd been attacked by a small gang. He claimed he woke up in a jail cell, paid a $25 fine, and left. In response to this claim, J. Edgar Hoover said, quote, It seems to be an inherent part of a pervert's makeup to also be a pathological liar. J. Edgar Hoover and Senator Joseph McCarthy both used the threat of communism to gain personal power by attacking many people who were genuinely dedicated to the fight against that threat. In one of American history's great perversities, this vendetta, carrying with it the tinge of hysteria, would ultimately tarnish many of those who, like Carmel Ophi, had been in the very vanguard of the fight against international communism.
On April 25, 1950, Senator Kenneth Wary took to the Senate floor and announced, Within the last 30 minutes, I have been informed by the head of a government agency that the man against whom the senator from Wisconsin has made a charge on the Senate floor this afternoon has finally resigned. Turning to McCarthy, Wary then burbled, I am proud to be associated with a man who is doing his level best to clear this country of communists and moral perverts in the government. The FBI actually maintained an active file on Offie up to the end of his life. After he was driven out of the CIA, Offie found a job in Washington, D.C. with the Free Trade Union Committee, a group operating under the International Women's Garment Workers Union, which was secretly funded by the CIA. There, he used his connections within the CIA to help the FTUC with the process of navigating the CIA's complicated bureaucracy. Carmel Offey died on June 18, 1972, when the airplane he was on, British European Airways Flight 548, crashed just minutes after takeoff, killing everyone on board. He was 62 years old. All right, well, that was Carmel Offey, a very interesting character that played a large role in uh, U.S. history and is kind of forgotten today. Yeah, at the, I, I really like this story. What would you think, Brennan? That was a very interesting story. And, um, you know, these kind of untold stories of characters, sometimes good, sometimes bad, and maybe they were taken out for the wrong reasons but yeah it can it can get kind of complicated yeah my favorite kind of part of the story this um episode really had to do with uh tito and it kind of uh cracked me up that he was standing up to stalin and like ah stalin and stalin's the traitor to the communist revolution (laughs) and yeah, I was like, ah, oh, you're totally turning your back on the Greek communists, you know, how dare you? And that whole, like, within the Eastern Bloc, no, 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 the best way to be a communist is to submit to the authority of the central directive. And it's like, yeah, Tito's like, no, nah, I think I won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, if there's anything I've learned studying world history, you know, at the beginning, uh, in the middle of the 20th century, and and also studying like the the lead up to the Russian Revolution, is that leftists will argue over the most trivial points and completely like split off and have nothing to do with other leftists based on, you know, small details. They're like Baptist churches. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. That's it's like you're not the right kind of leftist. You don't have the perfect truth belief. You're not. You don't believe it in the correct way. And it's like you might even believe the right thing, but you don't believe the right thing in the right way. Not for it's (laughs) your your reasons for believing that are slightly different than mine. So I remember my most 
like clear memory of that once was um uh i think it was um like a rally for amnesty or something uh, for or not really amnesty so much as um the dreamers you know like the kids that you know they didn't have any choice in it and they were brought in and and um you know i was there and uh, there was a guy like i agreed with him in principle but he kept getting mad at me because um I said illegal immigrant. He's like, no, well, they're undocumented workers. And I was like, well, no, they have immigrated in a way that's not legal. And if you call someone an undocumented worker, you're just kind of reducing people to workers. And like, if I went somewhere I wasn't supposed to be, um, you know, or without the proper, you know, papers or, or, you know, legal permission, then I would probably consider illegal immigrant respecting my human dignity more than undocumented worker. But the point, the point is like, I mean, it's, is like, we agree on what we think should happen. Why are you arguing with me about this phrase? And, um, yeah, so it was just, it was like, I mean, I've, okay, fine, if you want to say on documented worker at the end of the day, okay, but why why are we arguing about this? And, it, yeah, it's frustrating. And you see that the best example of that is, I think, from what I've seen, the whole build-up to the Russian Revolution and that all of the key players in that were completely inflexible in their you know, their system of ethics and we're all completely insufferable people. You could not have a, you couldn't have a conversation with Lenin. He was a huge asshole. And if you, he was overbearing. If you disagreed with him, he would, you know, talk you into the ground. I don't want to go to a party with that guy. All the communist party wasn't really all that fun. You know, like we were saying, um, people are, are the same you know throughout time and, and location just kind of they all wear hats just different hats and um yeah monty python life of brian made fun of of that sort of just bickering over the little things you know and brian's trying to find the rebels and it's like oh, i need to find the the popular judean front and they're like we're not the popular Judean front we're the popular front of judea it's like, well, where's the popular Jude in front? He's over there. And it's just <laughs> finding yes. a, just nonsense to argue and disagree over. Yeah, it's one of the sad aspects of uh, many people uh, who are politically leftist in that they're so rigid and absolute in what they think are, you know, infallible ethics. That, we're engaging in cannibalism ourselves, even bringing it up. It's awful. We're doing the thing we're complaining about. Well, that's assuming we're leftist. Well, um, thanks for listening, as always. And please be sure to hit us up on those. Uh, rate the, the show on your podcast listening medium of choice. Write us a review if you've got that much uh, time and wherewithal. That was always a big help. Follow us on those uh, social media platforms at Twitter and Instagram. We're CIA Files Podcast. And on Facebook, we're just CIA Files. And uh, 
I think that's it. I hope you enjoyed the show. Yeah. Oh, and the website, CIA Files. Yeah, CIAfiles.net is the website where you can go to get more information on our sources. Uh, you know, if you want to read uh, more through this. And oh, quick mention, I'll say that the the main book that I used was The Quiet Americans. And that's a very good book. I recommend it if you're interested in the Cold War, especially like the lead up to the Cold War um, coming out of World War II. Very good book, The Quiet Americans. And that's everything I can think of. Cool. Well, I guess that's, uh, I guess that's it. <laughs>